and that they, she was cared for at home rather than going to a hospice because her husband had died of, my brother-in-law died of cancer in a hospice and she hadn't, that had not been a good experience for them or not for my sister. So she was at home, but the last month of her life was ghastly. They didn't control the pain. She had fearful headaches and fearful hallucinations and dreams. Uh, we said goodbye to her some five weeks before she died, thinking she was going to die that night, and then she kept on recovering. And the reason they were given, and this is my question, the reason they were told this happened was because people, doctors are now very fearful of giving sufficient painkilling uh, to control pain because they're worried about being sued because of the Shipman case. So what she was promised didn't happen. Mm. How can you be so confident that the palliative care is going to work? Um, I guess the first thing is to say that it's incredibly sad to hear that. Um, I think it's always difficult when people make promises that things will be perfect because unpredictable things happen, mistakes get made, or sometimes people's conditions behave unpredictably and it is really hard. I would be really sad to think that people were scared of giving appropriate doses of painkillers because they were scared of the Shipman case. And I would say if that was the case, then that, that's poor education and poor spreading the word of palliative care, so to speak, because actually there is a huge difference between giving appropriate painkillers for somebody who needs them and giving the doses that would lead to killing them. And so that shouldn't have happened. Um, I think on a wider level, it's really sad that at the moment, palliative care doesn't cover everything. We are constantly researching, we're constantly building up an evidence base of good symptom control, but also we're constantly building up systems for educating and training people so that it doesn't just always have to rely on a specialist being in the right place at the right time, but that kind of district nurses, GPs, everybody involved can help a patient to be as comfortable as possible in the place that they want to be. Can I just add, um, it, Britain is the world leader in terms of palliative care. If you look at the very best palliative care that is provided uh, in the UK, it's incredibly impressive and very effective. But tragically, many, many people, I'm afraid, your story is by no means unusual, many, many people in this country die with it totally inadequate care and often by very poorly trained medics. So the, the level of training in palliative care that the average doctor gets is very limited, very poor and very inadequate. And also the amount of research that goes into palliative care is tiny, absolutely minuscule compared with the amount of research that goes into cancer and the amount of emphasis on cancer research and so on. Now, why is that the case? Answer, it's largely because of you, I have to say, the great British public, uh, because you, the great British public, are not the slightest bit interested in how you die. You're not slightly bit interested in pain relief and so on. You're much more interested in pouring millions and billions of pounds of research, of money, of your own money, into finding new cures for cancer, new cures for heart disease, better means of heart transplants and so on. And yet, in reality, all of us are going to die. So I speak out of frustration that actually it's perfectly unnecessary for, you, for this person to die with in, in that way. But sadly, it happens all the time in the UK, and it reflects the fact we need to reassess our priorities 
And, and the, the great British public needs to insist that this is much more important than finding some incredibly new expensive cure uh, for cancer or for heart disease and so on, that actually palliative care is, is one of the most important things that the, the National Health Service ought to provide in this country. Good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> How nice to know. Now, um, could we move from the end of life to the beginning of life? You've got two questions there, really, about the beginning of life, when life begins, and whether abortion is ever justified, i.e. in rape, incest, etc. Yeah, yes. So these are about what are sometimes called the hard questions. And, of course, it's important to put it in context. As I said, 98% of cases in, are not, in, do not involve the hard questions of, of abortion. The actual numbers of abortions which are done because of either serious disability or horrific things like rape or the mother's life being at risk is actually relatively small. But they do happen. And how do we as Christian people think about this? And obviously this is a big issue. So one question says... Is it very occasionally right to perform an abortion? Can it sometimes be right, perhaps in the case of rape of a young girl whose life would be devastated? So, obviously, this is a, a deeply personal and, and, and real issue. My wife runs a crisis pregnancy in North London, uh, in Islington, and she has actually counselled several people who've become pregnant through rape, and, and, and is aware this is much more than just a theoretical issue. This is a very real and profoundly painful issue. But what she would say if she was here is she, she would say that this simplistic idea, here is this woman who has been violated, who had this profoundly awful experience, not only of, discovering, of being raped, but then of discovering you're pregnant. And you can imagine the turmoil of emotions because this is still my baby, however much, however this child was conceived, this, this being in my womb is still my baby, I am a mother. So you imagine the turmoil of emotions. The idea that an abortion is just going to solve the problem, it's all gone, you've had your abortion, now you can start your life again, we've just drawn a, a, a straight line under the issue, off you go and have your life again, is, is clearly completely false in reality. And in fact what Celia would say is that for many women, perceive the abortion itself as a kind of violation. And so what you're doing is you're taking somebody who's already had this appalling, tragic violation, and you're suggesting that by another kind of violation, you're going to solve the problem. Now, that's not to say that one would ever, I or Celia, would ever judge someone who felt out of desperation the only solution would be to try and have an abortion, except that, of course, it doesn't solve the problem. And amazingly, I can think of one example where Celia, uh, a, a girl who was pregnant through non-consensual sex, she considered having an abortion. In the end, she found within her heart the ability to love this baby. Uh, this little baby was born. She was supported by Celia, who became kind of sort of surrogate mother to her. And um, in fact, we've uh, this child, we know this child very well. He's, he's, he's the light of her mother's life. She's made a go of living as a single woman. Yes, it's been a terrible struggle. Yes, there have been all kinds of challenges and so on. But she's very proud of what she's achieved. She feels, you know, this is my son and no one can take my son away from him and he's the light of my life. So, yes, in other words, I do genuinely believe that there is a better way, not, a, not an easy way, not a pain-free way, a profoundly costly way, but ultimately it seems to me it's a miracle 
that, that by God's grace, it's possible out of the most horrific evil for something good to come. The, the other question was about, what about those issues where the mother's life is at risk? Is it ever right to do an abortion then? And what's important to understand in these rare situations is that the, the, the issue at stake is not should the mother live or the baby live. It isn't like that. The issue is should the mother and the baby die or only the baby die? That's, that's the only choice you have. It's not selecting one life against the other. It's either saying both will die or else the mother will live, but the baby will die. Now, in those rare situations, I and most other Christian doctors feel that it is appropriate in that tragic situation to take the life of the baby in order to save the life of the mother. And it seems as though death has already entered the womb. The doctor can't remove death. All the doctor can do is direct death one way or the other. And by directing death in that way, you save the life of the mother. If you direct death the other way, then both the mother and the baby will die. Thankfully, it's very rare. I put in the statistic, it's something like um, there's only a handful of cases every year which are abortions are done because of a risk to the mother's life. In most situations, actually, interestingly, the mother in this situation, for instance, when the mother is diagnosed with cancer or some terrible disease during pregnancy, and if you were to give her cancer treatment, you might damage the baby... Interestingly, in most situations, in my personal experience, most mothers are prepared to jeopardize their own life in order to try and give life to their baby. The natural instinct of a mother is to sacrifice herself in, a, in, a, in an attempt to give life to her baby. And mothers are prepared to jeopardize their own life in order to give any chance that the baby will survive. And usually what you can do is you can help both to survive by allowing the pregnancy to carry until the point at which the baby will survive as a very premature baby, and then you do a cesarean section, you deliver the baby, put the baby in the intensive care unit, and then you can give the treatment to the mother. So actually, in reality, in most cases, you can help both the baby and the mother to survive. Thank you. I'm very conscious that these, we've got lots of questions, but we're, I don't want to keep everybody too long. I'm just going to give it five or ten more, more minutes, because I think these are really important things. Joe. You spoke very movingly about how you as a Christian doctor approach this thing, talking about compassion. There are Christians, though, who there are people who profess to be Christians who take a different view. How do you deal with that? And are, are there Christian arguments for assisted suicide? Have you, in your experience, reached a point ever when you thought, actually, life is so utterly miserable that assisted suicide would be the way out? And have Christians been there trying to influence you at that time? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I certainly have come across Christians who feel that there is another way of thinking about assisted suicide. Um, I, I, I personally didn't find the way that they squared it with the Bible really fitted in that they were saying we're sort of entering with, into the suffering and death of Jesus by doing it and it just didn't quite fit for me Um, the second part of the question is there has there been a time that's made me doubt Um, there has been a one particular patient who sticks in my mind who I've found it incredibly hard to go through the process with him because he very much was asking anybody he could find will you help me to 
die when the time comes. And he had a progressive disability, which meant that he was gradually losing his hearing, his sight, his ability to communicate, and felt that at the point where he was locked in, life would be intolerable for him, and he wanted to know that somebody would let him out, so to speak, um, at that point. Um, I found that really hard as a doctor because it was the most directly I've been asked to help. And particularly in palliative care, we're known for being very lovely and nice and accommodating and like to say yes when people ask us for something. And to have to say, this is not an option, I cannot support you in this, was very hard. Um, As a professional, as a Christian, I just found it desperately hard seeing that he saw no value in his life when he reached that point and I think that really reflects what John was saying that actually so much of our value and our worth is based on what we can do and society reinforces that all the time and actually to be able to just say I exist and I can be loved and I can be cared for and that is all I can do to to have innate value in that is, is a hard thing to believe for myself but it's also a hard thing to believe for someone else and so that's that's kind of why that was particularly hard for me but I also was very pleased that the law at this point protects me from feeling forced into saying yes to something like that question here I think also to you Joe which I think you'll be able to answer quite quickly people I talked to this question says mentioned the Oregon assisted suicide law as an example of a successful law that doesn't affect the vulnerable and hasn't led to a slippery slope. What do you think? Um, John might be able to help me on this too. Certainly my understanding is an awful lot of people have a pill in their garage on the back shelf and never touch it, so they kind of use the the law as as almost a, this is my back out if things get really bad, but I don't actually take it. Um, is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the, the problem with Oregon is that it's light years away from a Western European country in that it's, a, it's a, a vast open land of farmers and rugged individualists who go off into the backwoods and top themselves with a shotgun. And it's utterly different from the, the, the kind of society that we have here. So Holland is actually a much closer okay. uh, yeah model of, of, the, of what would happen if assisted suicide was legalised here. Uh, the, there, is, there is no significant regulatory framework at all in, in the Oregon. There's never been a case where a doctor has been challenged about uh, whether they did it properly or not. They claim there's never been any serious complications in giving a lethal medicine, even though in Holland it's said that these are relatively common. Uh, so there are lots of questions about what's going on in Oregon, and it's interesting... Uh, I, if I could be allowed a, um, a bit of shameless self-publicity... Yes, do. Um, there's just a, a book, a new book, which, is, which I've just published, called Right to Die, Question My Assisted Suicide, Euthanasia and End-of-Life Care, uh, which looks at these questions, including what's going on in Oregon and Holland, uh, in quite a lot of detail, and then looks from a Christian point of view in positive responses to end-of-life care, palliative care, and so on. So if you're interested and would like to take these further, I brought along a whole lot of copies. It was just published two weeks ago, and it's available for £5 uh, on the bookstore at the back. And there's an older book, Matters of Life and Death, which is also available there, and that's um, 
that's on the other bookstore, so I'm not quite sure what they're selling it for, but that's also, could look at some of the I'll mention there. the bookstores in a moment. There is an opportunity to buy books this evening. I'll explain that in, in a moment. I just want to ask a couple more questions, first of all. There will be any number of people here who have had miscarriages, lost children at various stages. Do you really, really believe, both of you, that human life begins at conception? Well... It seems to me that's a question which is often asked. And, of course, I have to say, gently, when someone asks me that, that it's the wrong question. Because, Sorry, questioner. <laughs> because does human life begin at conception? Well, whatever that is in the womb, we know it's human. It's not an animal. And we know it's living. So, therefore, human life does... In fact, human life doesn't begin at conception, but human life... That conception is living because the mother is living. Why is she living? Well, she came from another mother who was living. Why is she living? Well, she came from someone who was living. So when does human life begin? Answer, human life begins back in the aeons at the, at the beginning of the human race. So the question is not, when does human life begin? The question is, when is there a person who deserves to be respected mm. or protected? Mm. Of course, that's a rather different question. And... Of, and, and the short answer is, I don't know, but what I, because ultimately what that being in the womb is, that tiny little blob, is a mystery. What I do know is that I am called to treat that mystery with a Christian sense of respect. And, and so if I don't know whether that little being is going to grow into human life, because I know I was a tiny little speck like that, as every one single person in this room was then it seems to me I should play safe. I should treat this being, I, sh I should protect this being. I shouldn't deliberately destroy the being. Say, well, I can't be certain if there's anybody there, so I'll just blow them up. You know, I'll just, I'll just destroy that life. It seems to me a Christian response to uncertainty is to play safe. So, yes, I don't know in any one particular case, but I think I'm called to play safe. That has implications, therefore, about the sort of contraceptions you use, about other... Uh, approaches to miscarriage. There's a verse which you know, means a lot to me, which Jesus said, and I've, I've shared it with a number of people who've had a miscarriage or a neonatal death or so on. And that where Jesus said, don't treat these little ones with contempt because I tell you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father. And apparently there's a rabbinic tradition that in the Holy of Holies, as the presence of God was between the, the cherubim, the cherubim, who were in fact like, like children, like babies, the babies' faces were up towards the presence of God so that, that, so that God always looked into the face of babies. And so I think there's something very mysterious and very profound that actually in heaven these tiny little ones are the, 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 are, are the very face of God uh, is beholding and and. and regarding as precious and significant. So perhaps in heaven things are all topsy-turvy. Perhaps the people we think are really important and significant and all those are, are actually not the most important. Perhaps it all works the other way around. Jo is an expert on palliative care, but she's had some experience at the beginning of life. And if you hear little noises coming from the back, it's because Daniel is being carried around at the back. She's recently given birth to Daniel. When, when, in your opinion, Joe, did the fetus that you carried become a person? Um, I don't think I can answer as well as John did. <laughs> can I just say what he said? I, I certainly think um, 
certainly from the moment I knew that I was pregnant, I was absolutely convinced this was a person, this was someone that we loved from that moment. Um, and so I guess when you know you're pregnant, it's, well, sometimes the baby might be just a few weeks, um, sometimes it's a bit longer. Um, but certainly to, to myself and my husband, he, he was very real, and our, before that our daughter was very real to us as a person right from that point so from that very personal non-scientific answer that's how it felt to me can i just put another comment it's one of the remarkable things for a baby doctor is the way that baby's photo albums have changed it used to be that the first photo in the baby's photo album was that wonderful time where you held the baby in your arm and that sort of polaroid picture that's what our in our kids that's that was the first photo now every baby's first photo album starts with a fuzzy grainy black and white (laughs) image of an ultrasound there's a tiny little blob sometimes it's only five millimeters and there it says that's him that's tom that's jane that's sophia that's her so it's interesting isn't it that our instincts are immediately to see that the person is there, even from this tiny little grainy blob. I'm going to give you one more, and I think we really must then call it a day, but there are lots of things here I would love to have your answers to, but I have to read the books. (laughs) But, uh, John, how do you reconcile the science with religion and ethics? For example, what is your view on genetically engineered babies? We now have even more precise techniques to enhance positive traits, e.g. memory, etc. Now, I know this. You probably have to write another book on this. You probably have written a book on it, for all I know. But give us a little bit about where we're getting to with this genetically influencing. Well, yes. This is hugely complex and challenging, and I don't have any easy answer. I think the issue is not primarily about the technology but it's what you're using the technology for. What are you trying to achieve? And an analogy that I've used, and it, to be honest, I, I do talk about it in more detail in this book, Matters of Life and Death, is the analogy of art restoration. So art restorers use very high-tech methods to restore some sort of ancient masterpiece, in a, uh, maybe you know, a painting which is three or 400 years old. Um, but they must only, they have a code of ethics just like doctors and art restorers are only allowed to use the technology according to the artist's original intention. In other words, you use highly sophisticated technology to restore the masterpiece, but you're not allowed to change the design. Now that's just some kind of analogy, but I think the same applies to medical technology. That that all of us as human beings are masterpieces, but we're sort of flawed masterpieces. We're damaged by sin and disease and and all the rest. Um, It's appropriate to use technology to restore the masterpiece, to turn us back according to the artist's original design. So, for instance, it seems to me that if there's a bit of DNA which is damaged or abnormal, and as a result I have some serious illness, to use highly sophisticated techniques to change that bit of DNA and put it back, or put an artificial bit of DNA which functioned exactly like the original stuff was meant to, that would seem to me appropriate in principle uh, as restoring the masterpiece. But to use the same technology to try and make, make human beings live for 150 or 200 years or have IQs of 150, 180, 200, 220, or to make them run a three-minute mile, then it seems to me that's actually changing the design. So the issue is not so much the technology. The issue is what are you doing it for?